You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Why don't we go ahead and find our seats and we'll get started here today. So glad that we can be gathered today. Beautiful day, sunshine. If you're new here, my name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad that you can be gathered with us. We'd love to get to know you if you're a, a new person this morning. Um, first of all, hey, give it up for the decor team. Does it look nice in here? Yeah. So they were working hard, hanging pictures and stuff till about 11 p.m. last night, and so Naomi Ledgerwood and Emily Davenport and Kim Nielsen have kind of run point on the refresh of our space and so there's a lot of other volunteers, you know who you are, who've helped with this. And so super thankful for this kind of, not necessarily a remodel, but a refresh. And we really, uh, I love it. I think it looks great in here and the lobby looks phenomenal. So if you see those people, say, say thank you to them. There's been a lot, a lot more hours than maybe you would, than you would think. And so, um, yeah, I really want to say thank you to them. This morning, if you have a question uh, about the sermon, um, you can scan that code there. Um, and that will go to uh, Slack, and I'll check out maybe a question or two at the end if we have time. If not, we'll answer those questions about the sermon uh, and the text and the topic uh, during the week in some format. So this is our last week of a short three-week series on what the Reformers, like guys like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli, what they said were marks of the true church in contrast from what the Catholic Church said at the time and maybe to this day, that a true church is a church that recognizes the Pope. The Reformer said that's not true. It's not biblical. Um, a true church is a church that does more than these things, but never less. Uh, that there's the right preaching of the word, and that there is the administration of the sacraments. For us, that means baptism and the Lord's Supper, and the practice of church discipline. And so for the past two weeks, we've looked at baptism in depth. We've looked at the Lord's Supper in depth. And today we're going to talk about the topic of church discipline. So if you have a Bible, grab it and turn to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. And Matthew, if you're new to your Bible, is the first book in the New Testament. And starting in verse 15. Matthew 18, 15. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Pray that this morning we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, that you would enable us to receive it by faith and with joy for the sake of your glory, for the sake of our discipleship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in my opinion, what we're going to look at today is maybe one of the most underemphasized teachings in the Bible. And today the text, of course, deals with church discipline. Um, It sounds really negative, and at times it can be negative, but in my opinion, it's actually extremely helpful, positive, and purifying for the church, for who we are, who, who God calls us to be, and how we're supposed to grow up into that. What we're going to talk about this morning is, in in some ways, indispensable, I think. 
But sadly, there's, there's nothing that's, for leaders at least, um, there's nothing more excruciating than leading the church through this kind of a process. Um, we've only ran, ran the whole process here, I think, two or three times in the 13, almost 13 years we've been a church. And every time, it's just utterly heartbreaking. But what we're going to see is, is at the outset of a church discipline process, this first step is often one of the best things that we could ever do and, and leads to restoration and reconciliation. And it's like we can cut the, you know, we, we can cut the thing off before it expands and explodes. Let's take a look. Look at verse 15 with me. If your brother, by implication sister, sins against you, what do you do? You go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So let's, let's break this down a little bit. Look at the opening words. He says, if your brother, what? Sins. Look at it in the text. If your brother sins against you. So we're talking about clear sin. We're not talking about preferences. Okay? Big distinction. We're talking about what the Bible says about sin. The Bible doesn't say a lot or anything about your preferences for how you might want to educate your children. Now, as Christians, a lot of people have really strong feelings about that. Homeschool, private school, public school. And you may have a deep conviction about that, but those things aren't the category of sin. So if someone makes a choice that's different than, than your choice, you wouldn't apply this passage. Okay? We're only talking about what Scripture calls sin and nothing else. What else does it say? If your brother sins against you, what's the next word? Go. Go. Right? A lot we could talk about. A lot implied in that word go. In light of different scenarios we find ourselves in. But what we say a lot around here, and we'll probably keep saying it a lot, I love it's one of our little mantras, is you don't talk about the person, you talk to the person. Right? You don't talk about the person, you talk to the person. And that comes straight from this verse. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, if someone sins against you, go and tell five people who aren't involved about your hurt feelings. He doesn't say that, does he? That's what Jesus is getting at here. You go to the person. We want to we wanna cut the root out of gossip. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, don't gossip. Don't entrench yourself in bitterness that almost always happens when you fail to go to that person. But go, talk to the person. Think about why this is so important. Think about why this is so important. There have been so many times in my life, I can tell you lots of stories, where a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody just cleared everything up. Cleared everything up. What I thought was sin against me 
I went and talked to the person, and actually, there's some things I didn't understand. And we got to clear it up. But think of the carnage of what could have happened if I wouldn't have just gone to the person and said, hey, I, I mean, in, in so many words, I feel like I've been sinned against here. Help me understand your perspective. If I didn't do that and I just went and talked to some other people, what that does to a community, right? So if, if we follow the script here, we do what it says, I protect that other person from slander and gossip, if I would have gone around telling everyone how I thought I'd been sinned against. And I was actually wrong, right? We just needed that conversation to clear it up. So talking to the person and not about the person often clears things up in such a helpful way, right? So Jesus says that we're to go. If you've been sinned against, we go to the person and we're talking only about clear areas of sin. We're not talking about areas of preference here. Okay? The proverb says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But deep are the cuts. This is not what the proverb says, but by implication it does say this. These are my words. So deep are the cuts of the one who runs around whispering, did you hear what they did to me? Did you hear what happened to me? Like that, that doesn't honor the other person. That doesn't honor the person listening to it, right? But going to the person, not talking about the person, preserves everyone's dignity, right? And notice also what Jesus is doing here when you go to the person. It's not a public, not yet, it's not a public confrontation in public, it's very much easier to get defensive, to feel more ashamed, to have lots of other negative emotions kind of bubble up to the surface. So at first it's private. It's not a pressured environment. It's an environment where there can be listening, there can be conversation, question asking, responding, right? I think about it like this, too, just to kind of paint the, the potential hurt that can happen when we don't take these words of Jesus seriously. But I think about this in my own marriage. Like if I, I found out that, that Kim was, or one of my closest friends was talking about me and not to me, I mean, that, that brings a deep sense of betrayal, right? Like I can't think of, and in my marriage, I can't think of hardly anything that's more hurtful than that. That like you're willing to share something with somebody else that you're not willing to share with me. I mean, that raises a whole host of questions. Is what, 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 have, what have I done wrong where you don't feel safe bringing it to me? Or what have you done wrong where you, you don't feel safe bringing it to me but to this other person? So we have to, we have to treat people the way we want to be treated, Right? So I need this reminder today. Maybe, maybe you need this reminder too. But think about another angle. When we talk about someone and not to them, when we don't do what Jesus says here in verse 15, when we don't go to them, tell him his fault, just between the two of you, like it says, look at verse 15. If we fail to do that, this is another angle on it. 
we rob someone of the opportunity for growth. The theological word would be sanctification. We rob someone of that opportunity, right? And and when we grow in holiness, when we grow in our sanctification, that brings long-term joy. That's a really good thing. That's something that we should take seriously. But if it's all suppression and talking to other people and not talking to the person, it's just poison in a community as opposed to, man, there's life in this community because we're collectively confronting our sin and, and God willing, pr- repenting of it, growing in holiness, that makes everything better. Right? A few years ago, I was, I was confronted, this is before I moved here, my old church where I used to work in New Mexico. I was confronted by a leader at a church where, where that really, really stuck with me. It marked me. It was a moment of great growth for me. I can think of key examples uh, when I was in high school with my dad, where he had to confront me, and it, it really was something that I remembered. I didn't enjoy it at the time, but I remember it, and it changed me as a result. I can think of key examples in my 20s. I think of key examples in my marriage. I can think of a, uh, really helpful, painful examples in my 30s when I was confronted, and it helped me grow immensely. I'm a different person as a, to, to this day because someone was faithful to do this. Praise God for those people who love me enough to tell me the truth and show me my sin. The opportunity for me to grow and to get better. But that never happens if we talk about the person and not to the person, right? Again, so let's summarize where we've been. Just verse verse 15, it's areas of sin. It's direct. It's not suppression of things. It's not talking about the person. It's talking to the person. Let's keep, let's keep reading. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Verse 16, but if he does not listen to you, sorry, let me back up. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So what's the goal in mind here? The goal in mind is not squashing people. The goal in mind here is not taking joy in public confrontation. The joy here is not like, I'm going to make an example out of you. That's not the goal. The goal is restoration. See that? You've gained your brother. There's no joy in kicking somebody out of the church, which is where this leads. There's zero joy in that. Where is there joy? There's joy in repentance. You've gained your brother. We haven't lost anyone. Because of sin. Like, that's the goal here, right? It's restoration. Jesus does not say you've shamed back your brother or you've shown up your enemy. Like, church discipline is never a witch hunt. Anybody who would take joy in this process probably has has a problem, a deep problem. It's not a competition who can be right, who can be wrong. The goal here is restoration of people for their joy and the joy of the church for ultimately the glory of God and the purity of the church and the world. So 
unrepentant, clear sin, it can't be tolerated. But where there's repentance, man, there's celebration, period. Just like Jesus restored us through the, through the dying for us and rising again for us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we do the same, right? The goal here is restoration in love. Experientially speaking, this is just the first step. And in my experience, 98% of the time, the problem usually is resolved right here. It usually just ends right here, right? Just go and talk. Just go and talk. When, when this happens on a regular basis where it's necessary, it almost always creates a healthy church culture. And the opposite is almost always true. Where this is not happening, where it's a culture of gossip, the church is just going to be toxic over time. It's just a matter of time. So we neglect what Jesus says here to our demise, but when we listen by faith with ears to hear, man, there's blessing. There's blessing. Let's keep reading. Verse 16. Step two. But if he does not listen... This is step two now. Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. It doesn't jump off the page, but take note of what Jesus is doing here. There's a process. It's not one strike and you're out. There's a process. And that process probably implies patience. Impatience would be, you sinned against me, you're out. Process implies patience. I just want you to see the grace of God in this, right? Jesus is gracious in how he tells us to handle these things in our communities. And Jesus doesn't give like a firm timetable, right? So this is going to be the pathway of wisdom, we have to make, simply have to make choices on the speed of the process, pray for help from the Holy Spirit, right? So second step is, what does it say? Look at the text, verse 16, take one or two others along with. So bringing others along can bring more objectivity. It can bring another perspective. It also communicates the seriousness of the sin, like we're agreed on this. We're agreed on this when we come to confront. Like it's not just he said, she said. It's not just one-on-one. -on -one. It's multiple people agreeing that this is a big deal. And that says something significant. It's important. But remember, we do this because these are weighty matters. These are weighty matters. Like if there's no repentance, potentially this person's eternity is at stake, biblically speaking. That's what Christianity teaches, right? So second step, more people involved. Let's keep reading verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, this is step three now, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. So tragically, a couple times over the course of our almost 13 years together, you've heard us at a family meeting so you, this probably won't happen in our structure on a Sunday morning. It happens in our meeting uh, for members. And any, any, uh, people that aren't members can still come and listen in. 
but the target audience in our family meeting is our members. And you'll hear us say something like, and this person um, is refused repentance after step one and step two. So now we're bringing it to you. And all that is for is if you see them, would you join in the process of asking this person, how are you doing? Come back. We care about you. Turn from this. It doesn't have to be this way. I mean, you, you use your own words, but that's the spirit of why we tell it to the church. So we get the most number of people involved calling this person, saying, we agree on this. We want to call you back. Like the wages of sin is death. You're headed in the direction of death. Come back to the, the, the direction of life, right? Collectively doing that is a powerful thing. Again, it's not a witch hunt. It's not coming, blasting people with accusations and, and name calling and stuff like that. That's not Christian character. That's not the fruit of the Spirit. But it is a gentle, yet courageous, yet truthful saying to someone, hey, we love you. This is the pathway of destruction. Please don't go that way. Come back. And that's what we ask you to do at a family meeting. The point is, larger number of people get involved. One, then maybe two or three, and then the whole group. But there's another aspect as well. And I think this is kind of tangential, but it's really important. We tell it to the church so the church can be unified about taking sin seriously. It helps the church, when we, when we listen to Jesus and do what he says here, verse 17, it helps the church be reminded that sin is serious. We can oftentimes have a cavalier approach. I remember very, very vividly, and a lot of you have heard this story now because of the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Church. Um, a lot of you in the room have listened to it. I'm not convinced. I'm, I'm a little torn whether it's Christian celebrity gossip or a really helpful cautionary tale. You know what I mean? And and for me, it was a really helpful cautionary tale. But I, I as an Acts 29 church, uh, there's this guy, for those of you that haven't listened to the podcast, this guy named Mark Driscoll, um, who, used, who was the founder of Acts 29, our, our family of churches, over 700 of them now. And uh, there's patterns of sin in his life over the course of years and years with no repentance. And he was removed from his church, and then he was removed from the Acts 29 network as one of the leaders. And I remember when we got that email saying that he'd been removed, my first response was, for me, it was just like this weight just like dropped on my shoulders and like this sobriety of like, wow, this is serious. If it could happen to Mark, it could happen to me. I don't want that to happen to me. Um, Lord, would you help me to take sin seriously? Would you help me not to harden my heart? Um, would you help me not to disparage your reputation and your glory in the world through the church? It's a, telling it to the church, it's a purifying process for everybody because it sobers us all up to the reality that sin is real, it needs to be dealt with, and sometimes it is dealt with it in, in, in this way that's, that's 
very severe when it gets to the end, severe in terms of the consequences. We do need to be reminded of these things, and I think that's a tangential benefit of telling it to the church. It sobers us up. So following these steps is really good for the church. It, 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 It reminds us that God's glory is at stake, Because think of what would happen if we just swept all these things under the rug. The biblical example of this is found in 1 Corinthians 5 that we're not going to unpack today. But basically, Paul says to the ancient church in Corinth, you guys are tolerating sin in your church that unbelievers don't even tolerate. And his point is, how how do you think an onlooking world is looking at this local church when it does that? Does that make God's glory look beautiful? Does that make your your collective communion together as a church something that other people might want to join in on? No. It ruins God's reputation, and it ruins this church's reputation. Right? So there's times when we have to be sobered up to these things. Check out this quote from a commentary that I found really helpful. It says this, It's no small thing when a Christian congregation decides in solemn convocation that a person who was once a Christian brother or sister and is still hard-hearted cannot be considered a brother or sister any longer. When the whole assembly participates in this decision, and not just the leaders, the whole assembly experiences the fear of the Lord and the gravity of sin. The disciplining experience may be one of the important ways that the Messiah will save his people from their sins. And that's where the text leads next, if we keep reading. Verse 17, he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if, this is step four, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? Let him be to you as. Well, the first thing to remember is that Matthew, we're reading the the Gospel of Matthew, primarily a a Jewish target audience. The original audience would, would have been Jewish people that had converted or being converted, curious about Jesus, reading the gospel, Jewish background, becoming Christians. But Matthew's one of the most Jewish gospels. And so Jewish people at this time in history, sinner, tax collector was code for unbeliever. Somebody not in the covenant community. So, so notice he didn't say your sin is no big deal. Look at, look at how he treated Zacchaeus, the tax collector. He went to his house, right? So, but he didn't say, Zacchaeus, your sin is no big deal. Zacchaeus practices repentance. So how do we relate to sinners and tax collectors? Zacchaeus is a great model, tax collector. Jesus went to his house, called him to repentance. He repented, Right? He had fellowship with them. He loved them. He told them the truth. So step four just means we deem them an unbeliever. The church formally says this person, we call them an unbeliever because that's exactly how they're acting. How are they acting? No repentance. Clear sin, no repentance. That's that's the pathway of, of unbelief. 
That's all of us before we receive the Holy Spirit. And, 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 and listen to God's word with, with ears to hear and eyes to see, right? But does, but, but we also, so that's a very grave judgment that the church has the authority to, to declare. At the same time, how does Jesus relate to tax collectors and sinners? What does the Bible say? He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He tells them the truth. He calls them to repentance, but he has relationship with them. So all this means is when you get to step four in church discipline process, this person now becomes a candidate for evangelism, right? This person becomes a candidate for evangelism. So it's not your sin is no big deal, but it's not necessarily um, I can't ever talk to you again, okay? But again, it's, it's probably not either business as usual, just surfacey conversations, talk about the weather. It's more like if we're going to do this correctly, it's going to be, man, I love you. How's your heart? Like this thing is still unresolved. That takes courage. It takes courage. That's hard. But I think love, true love for people implies that in light of this text. So just to summarize, four steps in, in what Jesus says here in a church discipline process, go to the person. We talk to the person, not about the person. If that doesn't go well, we get one or two other trusted folks involved. If that doesn't go well, no repentance. Remember, there could be patience in the process. We tell it to the church. In our case, that probably happened at a family meeting. And finally, if there's no repentance, we, we formally deem them an unbeliever. Let me make a couple of comments in closing. I think I've said it already, but I just want to emphasize it again. I've never once regretted following the script. And I, and I find myself saying that as a pastor over the years is when these kind of situations come up, my first thing to say to someone is, I think you need to follow the script. Like just, let's just give, like it sounds silly to say it like this, how about we give God's word a try? Right? Let's just try it this way. I know in our flesh, in our desires, we want to try other ways of doing it. Let's just let's stick with the script. Let's stick with the script. Right? God has given us clear instructions here. There's so many ways for us to screw this up when we're sinned against. Everybody in this room has been sinned against. You know what that feels like. And you know the potential for you to sin against someone else when you feel hurt, when you feel sinned against, right? And so that's why Jesus gives us these instructions. Remember, the Bible says that the church is Jesus' bride. This is Ephesians chapter 5. It's a beautiful metaphor. It's a picture. We've talked about the Lord's Supper and baptism as a picture. This is another one. Ephesians 5. Jesus laid down his life for his church for his bride it's the picture jesus is the husband the church is the bride so by implication jesus loves his wife very very much i think about this in my own terms like i love my wife very very much 
right? I'm very interested in her health. I'm very interested in Kim's overall well-being. And, and Jesus feels the same way for his wife. He longs for the purity and the unity of his wife. He's very interested in her health. And this text this morning is one of the best ways to pursue health in the church. It's the great physician saying, this is the prescription for health. So it's like, let's go to the Jesus Walgreens and and get those pills, right? And take them. This is the prescription for health. Man, I could tell you hundreds of horror stories of when we fail to do this and what that what that produces in a, in, a, in a local church. It always starts with gossip and then assumptions that are unproven, right, start to be believed. And then teams get formed and those become more entrenched and solidified. We start to believe the worst about each other instead of believing the best about each other. No one's talking to each other but just assuming everything negative about the other, the heat gets turned up as time moves on. You have a narrative in your head that's unproven, but the longer that narrative sits in your head unproven, it actually starts to feel very, very real. Like how could it be otherwise? The longer it goes, right? And those feelings just deepen, become more entrenched, and then every time it explodes somehow. It always explodes. You can only suppress for so long. It always explodes. Churches split. Relationships devastated. The glory of God in the local church tarnished for onlooking witnesses. Like if, if, if I... Let me say it like this. The bride's unhealthy behavior makes the husband look really bad you would say, what's the deal with the husband if the wife is so crazy? And that's, that's the church. It makes Jesus look bad. Why would I want to have that husband around when the wife is so unhealthy? This is all too common in, in the history of the, of the local church. But here's the good news. And I've seen this go so well over the years. And it can make the church really strong and beautiful when it's followed. And here's the thing that all of us need to just be committed to is step one of church discipline is extremely normal. Extremely normal. It's been happening for 25 years in my marriage. It's been happening for 18 years with with my oldest son and then 18 years with my second daughter and then 16 with Emery and and 14 with Maya, right? Step one, just like, hey, I feel like you've sinned against me here. I think we need to talk about that. Like we do step one all the time in my marriage, right? It's so healthy. We don't do it as much as we used to, right? Because earlier on, there's, there's a lot more sin that needs to be dealt with. We're young, stupid, immature, you're like, Everything has to get worked out when you're first married, right? And then God willing, over time, 
It just gets better and better as you grow in sanctification and holiness. We're not perfect, but we, we are what we once were. And that's a testimony by God's grace of, of just trying to do, not perfectly, but trying to do step one of church discipline just in our marriage. And 25 years later, she's my best friend without question, right? We're not perfect at all, but we're definitely not what we once were. So we've done step one of church discipline thousands of times in our marriage, thousands of times in our parenting, right? Super normal, super normal. It should be super normal. And it should be true in the the family of God too, in the church. That's why Jesus said it, right? When we love love one another enough to talk to them and not about them, relationships can grow and deepen. And God knows what he's talking about here in his word. So we, 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 we ignore him. We, we close up our ears to our own detriment. Church, let's believe Jesus here. This will make the vine and any other church listening in so much stronger. Like here's another just quick catchphrase I think all of us should memorize. Because sadly, this does happen a lot where we hear about things. You know, we hear about things. And, and here's, when you hear about something... Here's something you should say. It sounds like you need to go talk to that person. It sounds like you need to go talk to that person. Just let's say it together. It sounds like you need to go talk to that person. Amen. You guys sound good. Awesome. Awesome. That's good. But that, I mean, that will say, that phrase right there will save churches because that progression always happens. Gossip, believing the worst, entrenchment, teams get formed, you know, and, and then the church is split. Sounds like you need to go talk to that person, right? I mean, I just had that experience this week. Sounds like you need to go talk to that person. Remember, we're, 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 God's glory is at stake, right? All of the crazy church controversies that I've seen in my adult life just the last two decades— it doesn't make God's glory shine. It doesn't make it radiate. It makes the church look horrible. And who wants to be a part of a church or wants to be a part of a relationship with a God where his people are so screwed up? Now, listen. On the other hand, we're going to always have to say that we're screwed up. That's why we need Jesus. But the issue is repentance. The issue is repentance. It's honesty. It's pushing back as hard as we can against hypocrisy. That's the difference. That's the issue. Okay, so don't, don't hear me up here preaching that we have to be perfect. We'll never be perfect, but at least can we own it? And that's owning it or owning that you've been hurt and wanting to deal with it and not gossip. That's what this text is all about, right? Two final thoughts. Um, the gospel has already outed you. If you're a Christian, the gospel has already outed you, Right? That's what Matt Chandler says, and I'll just repeat it. The gospel has already outed you. So, what's the implication? The implication is, I know I'm a sinner. So if you come and tell me that I've sinned against you, it shouldn't be like some big shocker. Like, what? I didn't know I was capable of that. No, like the gospel tells me I'm capable of that. Now, we're all defensive. We all are going to lean in the direction of defensiveness. But the more that you can remember, man, the gospel says I'm a sinner. I had to confess that I was a sinner when I became a Christian. So it's probably not shocking that I'm going to have to confess some sin to people that I'm in closest relationship with. 
right? Now, you might come back and say, it's not always that cut and dry. You're right. It's not always that cut and dry. Life is complicated. Situations and hurt feelings, very complicated at times. But at least we can be humble and entertain the possibility of having sinned and assume we have blinders on and can't see ourselves as perfectly as we think we do and have the willingness to listen in humility. And even if there's a 10% truth in what they're saying and 90% false, there's still probably a 10% we can grow from. That's hard. I get that. That's really hard. But even taking that 10% will help you. Finally, I think one of the best ways that Matthew 18 and this text can come alive in our church and have it be beautiful is kind of like the, 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 what's the word? Having a foundation upon which to build Matthew 18. And the foundation, I think, should be encouragement. So here's what I mean. Like, when you go to someone and, and, and tell them they've sinned against you, like, that's kind of a withdrawal. Like, you're withdrawing money from their relational bank account. What are deposits in the relational bank account? It's just being a culture of encouragement. Like, if we're people that just are always encouraging each other, like, our default setting is to see someone try to encourage them. If that's the default setting in all of our relationships, it's like putting money in the relational bank. It's putting money into that bank that says, man, I love this person. This person knows that I love them. They're encouraging me all the time. Man, I know that they love me. And so when I come and I have to do a deposit, because Jesus implies deposits are going to have to, or I mean withdrawals are going to have to happen. When I have to do a withdrawal, there's money in the bank. We're not bouncing relational checks constantly. You with me? Like a culture of encouragement that's just normative makes Matthew 18 go a lot better. And the Bible says a lot about encouragement. Encourage one another daily. Hebrews chapter 3. So let me, let me close with one, one quote here that I think is great to uh, reflect on. This is one of my seminary professors, Dr. Dan Doriani. He says this. What a blessing would be ours if we followed Jesus' counsel. Everyone would seek the lost and everyone would seek to restore those who have sinned against them. Leaders would assist with the hardest tasks of discipline and restoration, knowing the Lord is with them. Throughout, we would seek his healing grace for others as we do. And as we do, we would consider again the mercy he showed us when he welcomed us into his presence despite our sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, how it shapes and guides us. Lord, would you help us live in light of these things? And we ask this in Jesus' name.